Larry King, the man sitting behind the microphone and in front of the cameras at CNN for 25 years, is now standing up all around the country. He's coming to Las Vegas with his new stage show, Larry King Standing Up, telling stories from his growing up years in Brooklyn to his unprecedented talk show career and answering questions from the audience. That's one night only, Saturday, June 11th at 10 p.m. in the Terry Feeder Theater at the Mirage. For more information on the show, go to BaseEntertainment.com or Mirage.com. And Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Sarah. I might also add, as an extra added attraction, my wife, Sean, who is younger and much prettier than me, <laughs> is going to open the show by singing. She's a terrific singer. And she's performed with you on a couple of occasions. Yes, she has, and she's opened for Rickles in Vegas before, and she's uh, sung at the win. But I'm glad to have her for the Mirage on Saturday. Excellent. Well, I have a, a question. I want to talk a little bit about the show, but the most important question will be, when you're on stage at the Mirage, will you be taking any phone calls? <laughs> no. No. Okay. <laughs> That'd be tough to do. But but it, it, the, for a little background, Ira, all those years that I've been on CNN, even before that, I have always been invited to appear at conventions, sales meetings, and I've always told funny stories. And my nephew uh, is Scott Zeiger, and he runs Base Entertainment, which, by the way, is producing uh, Jersey Boys in Vegas. And uh, they do a lot of shows in, in Macau and Singapore. And, and he used to see me do these, these tell these stories. So when I kind of semi-retired from CNN, he said to me, why don't, you, uh, why don't you do a stage act and do theaters? I said, I don't want to kill myself. He said, well, we'll do some weekends like. So he said, we'll, we'll get in touch with William Morris Entertainment and we'll book you. So I said, okay, but they, what are they going to think I'm going to do? You know, the general public doesn't know comedy. He said, well, we'll have to sell it as a comedy show. So they they set up all these bookings. My father-in-law is Carl Engelman, who used to manage Marie Osmond, and he did, like, the road management. And so I get on stage, but the only difference between working at a convention and doing this is this is really a, a, like a Broadway show. There's backdrops, there's scenes behind me. When I tell a story, there's visuals that fit the story. And it's it's very disciplined, very well done. It's a solid 80 minutes, and it's... 95% laughs, and there's a couple of little story, biographical stories as well. So it's like an evening with. And we were, we opened in uh, Atlantic City at the Borgata, and then we worked Boston at the theater, and then we worked a casino outside of Indianapolis, and now the Mirage, and then we go to this wild horse place in <laughs> Phoenix. And then, get this, in September, I'm going to Europe. We're booked in Oslo, Iceland, Denmark, London, and Munich, which is strange to me. And then next year, we're booked uh, early next year into New Zealand. And uh, uh, Qantas is going to fire us down uh, south. We go, we go, it's, it's boggling my mind well, how, do how you, much we're doing. How do you do that? And also, I know you've got two kids, Chance and Cannon. I know that you usually reserve thursdays and sundays for them for coaching well so, now the season's over oh the season's over so you can yeah, do it so okay. their, their baseball season's over they're both going to camp cannon's going to football camp in uh, in utah chance is going to the big img camp in florida baseball camp so uh i'm kind of like uh got the opportunity to do these you're, uh, you're a temporary they're, they're, you're a temporary empty nester Correct, but I'm gonna. I I think they may come to the show Saturday night if they get their homework done in time. Now you also are going to take some questions from the audience, correct? We will. We end the last ten minutes or so. We have them fill out cards, 
and then uh, they hand them to me, and I, I don't pre-read them. I just go through them. And then just answer whatever whatever questions you yeah. want. On there. That, that's a, it's that's a really idea. fun night. It's a, I know uh, Jay Leno's working there Friday, and then I'm doing Saturday, and Varage uh, has seen this, and uh, Felix Rappaport, who runs it, has seen me do this. And I might be doing the Mirage three or four times a year. Well, here's a question for you. Do you think, I mean, the most important market, I think, for you, I mean, Las Vegas is certainly one of them, but wouldn't Brooklyn be the main market for you? Well, New York would be. Yeah. yeah. I'm sort of subdividing because you're of your Brooklyn background. Yeah. They, uh, they're, they're talking about me doing uh, New York theater uh, next summer on a limited engagement basis. One of the reasons I semi-retired, I'm just doing four specials a year for CNN, was to be with my boys, so this is getting turning ridiculous. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not young anymore, so I want to. I want to. I want to spend more time with the boys. So if sure. I did New York theater next summer, they would come to New York with me, along with my wife, and we'd spend six weeks in New York. Your background obviously came originally from radio. You had a long career in radio before you even started with CNN, and I understand there's a classic story which I'd appreciate you telling us in terms of. Jackie Gleason and Frank Sinatra. Yes, I will. You hear that other ring going? I'm in a hotel, so the other phone, I'll just let it ring. Okay. Because you're more important, Ira, than anyone who may be calling me. It could be, in fact, it could be the president, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Tell him later. Okay. Jackie Gleason was a great friend of mine, kind of a mentor. He'd appear on my radio show, my television show. He turned into a great friend. And this was in this was while you were in Florida, right? In Miami, when he came down to Miami, he left New York to do a show for Miami Beach. I I went down on the train with him. That's where I met him, and then I emceed his welcome to Miami dinner, and we got close. And uh, one night we were at his house. Sinatra was opening the following week at the Fontainebleau. And he was just questioning. He just said, what, what in your profession is impossible? He, Jackie used to like to think of these things. What's impossible in the radio talk show profession? I said, okay, Frank Sinatra, the number one star in the world, is in 1964. Right. Frank Sinatra to come on my radio show for three hours. He says, well, when does he open? I said, he opens next Tuesday. So when is he dark? I said, he doesn't work Monday nights. So, okay, the following Monday, you got him. Just like I, that. Just, like, just that. like that. I said, what are you saying? He said, trust me, pal, you got him. So I go on here, now I'm promoting. Next Monday night, Frank Sinatra. People are called in, they don't believe it. The station management, I tell them, Jackie got him. They take a big ad to Miami Herald, they're all nervous. Now it's the Monday night, right? Because you haven't heard it all from Frank's no, camp I haven't heard on from this. Frank and yeah. not talked to Jackie in the, in the last 10 days. So it's the Monday night. We're all nervous. Nobody goes home. The secretaries stay. Everybody's hanging around the station. And it's about five to nine, and a limo pulls up. And up the stairs comes Frank Sinatra and a PR guy with him, Jim, I forgot his last name. Mahoney, I believe. Mahoney. And Jim says to me, I don't know how the hell you got him. He pays me big money not to do this. Anyway, Frank sits down. Now it's nine, it's nine o'clock. I start. I got till midnight, three hours with Frank Sinatra on a local radio show. Now there's a lot of baloney I could have done, but I always learned to be honest. So I simply said, "Why are you here?" <laughs> on the air, you're asking him this yeah, question. Yeah, <laughs> I said, "My guest is Frank Sinatra. Why are you here?" And he said, "He said four, five, four years ago, I was working at Ben Maxick's Town and Country Club." in New York, and it was closing night. I'd worked a week, 
It was Saturday night, and I had laryngitis. And I couldn't sing, and the place was packed. So I called up Jackie Gleason, an old friend of mine. I said, Jackie, would you come and do the show? And he came and did my, he did an hour of comedy, he did music, he was funny, and the people were satisfied. He was a big star on television. And I walked him out to his limo. I leaned back in as he was leaving, and I said, Jackie, I owe you a favor. And uh, I owe you one, he said. I owe you one. And now he said, I came into Miami. I checked into the hotel. I get a message to call Jackie Gleason. I called Jackie. I said, Jackie, it's Frank. And he said, Frank, this is the one. <laughs> and that was a return favor. And then subsequently I got to be, got to know Sinatra well, did the last television interview with him. And in my new book, Truth Be Told, which is just out, Ira, just Excellent. out like now. Available on Amazon.com and other places. Yeah, we reprint the letter that Frank sent me after that interview. It's a historic Sinatra letter. And it's one of my treasured possessions, and it's reprinted. In fact, we photostatted it so you see his whole signature and everything. Uh, It's in the book. If it were anyone else but you, that story alone would serve as a lifetime remembrance to tell friends and family and other people. You've obviously had so many things beyond that, but just that one incident would stay in people's minds forever. Oh, you know... I've been so lucky, I want to tell you something. Look, uh, Paul Newman told me once that any successful person, semi-successful, any person who attains a degree of success, who doesn't use the word luck in discussing their life, is a liar. And luck played a big part in mine. I needed Sandy Freeman to quit her show in an argument with Ted Turner at CNN, or I would never have gotten that job. I needed the break of meeting a guy in the street who told me to break in in Miami. I don't know what would have happened. So life's little breaks, but I've been so fortunate. When I, when I, I was just did the View today, and uh, I'm sitting on this show, and I'm, I'm looking at this my 16th book. I pinch myself every day. I just did a show in Brooklyn called The Stoop, in which you sit on a stoop with this girl who owns this house. It plays on one of these NBC alternate channels, and you talk. And I'm sitting on a stoop in Brooklyn where I was raised, and I'm talking about my career, and I can't believe all the things that have happened to me. I just, I cannot believe it, Ira. I just, I count my blessings every day. And the fact that you were sitting on the stoop in that sense, symbolically, was coming full circle from your roots in, in Brooklyn. Correct. It's like round the circle I went, and here I am back on a stoop. Did you know when you were first starting, and you were obviously you had been on the mutual broadcasting system, uh, and you were replacing Long John Nemble, who was on for a long period of time, and very few people would remember that name, as opposed to people that remember Larry King, because you're still here. But you replaced Long John Nemble, and did you ever think that even at that point that you would then move to Hollywood? Because I think you moved to L.A. originally to cover the O.J. Simpson trial, correct? That's well, you know your stuff, Ira. Thank you. Uh, well, I... The Long John Neville thing, Neville was on Mutual and a few other stations, but this was really the first network show all over the country. Neville wasn't heard in, in California. He was primarily in New York. Correct. Right. right. And he did a lot of stuff with occult stuff. Uh, but uh, Ed Little, who ran the Mutual Network, liked me, and he he knew my local radio show in Miami. Uh, that was a big hit. And I'd always done television. I had a television show in Miami for years. So television was new, not new to me either. But he called me up and he said, why don't you, uh, we think we could do a national radio show. 
So I did, I started that in 1978, moved to Washington, gave up my local uh, television show and got another television show in Washington, and then did uh, the national radio show, did television, did a newspaper column. And then in 1985, Ted Turner called and I started on CNN. But it, it all started with that mutual network thing. And Ted Turner guessed it on that show a few times. And that's how he knew me. And the fact that you have interviewed some of the, the biggest celebrities, and, and not just celebrities, but political leaders, governmental leaders, book authors, etc., you always seem to approach it as if you're just sitting there talking to a guy or to a woman. Well, I, I, you know that old thing about they put their pants on one leg at a time? That's true. And I learned uh, my first day on the air when I was nervous to just tell the audience I, I was my first day on the air and that I was nervous, and I never was nervous again. And I learned that basically I was always curious. I was the kind of kid who got on a bus when I was nine years old, and I asked the bus driver, why do you want to drive a bus? <laughs> you were starting to interview already. Correct. We'd go to Dodger games, and most of the kids wanted autographs. I never wanted autographs. I used to ask questions. I'd run along with the players and on, on the street. Why did you bunt in the third inning? What were you thinking in the ninth inning when you came in to pitch? In other words, I was just a why person. And so I got the chance to take that into a career of just asking questions. And basically, all I left myself out of it. I never had an agenda. I didn't use the word I. I just asked questions. And the thing I learned early was to listen to answers because often the answer provokes the next question. So you were having a conversation, really, with people. Correct, except I was the interviewer, and I controlled the conversation. Right. Let's take a break. My guest is Larry King. He's going to be appearing in Larry King's Standing Up, one night only, Saturday, June 11th at 10 p.m. in the Terry Fader Theater at the Mirage. For more information on the show, go to BaseEntertainment.com or Mirage.com. We'll be right back. We're back with Larry King. He's going to be appearing in Larry King's Standing Up, one night only, Saturday, June 11th at 10 p.m. at the Terry Fader Theater at the Mirage. For more information on the show, go to BaseEntertainment.com or Mirage.com. And you mentioned your, your current book. And How many total books have you written, Larry? Oddly enough, Ira, this is my 16th book. I didn't realize that until I read the flap in the book and it listed all the other books I'd written. I had forgotten a couple of them. The current one is called Truth Be Told. Yeah, it really is the story of my last year. Uh, the near breakup of the marriage, the uh, prostate cancer, uh, which had never been revealed before. Stories of the, with celebrities and little comments about people I've interviewed and quotes that weren't in previous books. And I think it's, it really is, everybody that's seen it thinks it's a hell of a book. I'm very proud of it. It's kind of like a goodbye book, although I'm not saying goodbye because I'm doing other things. But uh, it, it, I'm really very proud of it. But that's basically what it is. It deals the prostate cancer story, which I never told, uh, I tell in this book. I, I got it a year ago, and uh, we nabbed it real early, and we did radiation. It's totally gone. Some people reveal those things. I didn't want to reveal it. Uh, Why did you decide then to reveal it in this new book? Because you've got to be honest, it's in a book. Uh, I didn't think it was anybody's business, but then I thought that it could help people because men, which are the only people that can get this disease, have a decision to make. And it's a very hard decision. A doctor calls you in, in my case, it, it, it wasn't stage four, it was stage one. 
and uh, cancer is very slow spreading. And I was 76 years old, and he said to me, this doctor who was the doctor of Michael Milken and Joe Torrey and famous urologists, he said, look, uh, we did a biopsy. Your PSA went up a little. We did a biopsy. Eight of the ten, we did ten counts. Eight of the ten, you're normal. The ninth and tenth, you have a trace. I think we should uh, treat it vigorously and do, uh, do radiation. Uh, he says, with this, if you're normally healthy and you live the rest, you could live to 95. And I don't want to lose you at 85. So I think you should do this. Now, I went to her second opinion, and the second opinion says, you don't have to do this. Another urologist, also pretty well known, who says to me, you know, two out of ten, you got a little small count. You're only in a, you're not even beginning of stage one. Don't do it. Now what do I do? Boy, that is a dilemma because it's your body. It's your life. Correct. So Michael Milken, who is a dear friend, came over the house and said, uh, do it. He said, uh, yes, there is a side effect. Yes, you'd lose desire, sexual desire. Uh, But do it because that will come back. But this way you'll have peace of mind. Or the other way you'll always be thinking about it. So I did it. It's in the back of your mind, in other words. Is it going to come to the point where... I did it, but one of the problems from it, you do, for a long period of time, uh, lose that part because your testosterone is gone. So you need some testosterone shots. And I tell you the truth, Ira, I sometimes have second thoughts. Uh, Because while radiation is painless, I never had a pain from this. The prostate never bothered me. Uh, It's still, you pay a price. Right. And uh, I sometimes think, was I wise enough? Should I have done that? But you'll never know. You never know. But, and then you're at least o- you do know, you're not going to get it. Right. And, and if you had gone the other way, you would have second-guessed that because it's human nature. Correct. So there's not much you can do. Do you feel by writing this this particular book, the most current book, that it was, I hate to use this overblown word or overused word, was it cathartic for you? Or you seem to be overly, you're a pretty straight guy anyway, so... I don't know that you necessarily had to bury your soul, but did you find it cathartic in terms of just dealing with that, that illness yeah, part of it? Yeah, sure. I tell you, someone said to me today, you know, I read your book, and while there's a lot of laughs in it, the book is 80% funny. Well, um, well your PSA was 80% fine, so yeah. same thing. It's almost like, uh, the book is almost like uh, dealing with a loss. And the loss was you gave up a show that was an international show. That uh, that there's little regrets. Regrets run through it a little. Uh, well, it is a it is a major loss. It's it's very similar to you have a long if you have a long standing relationship with a person and that goes away. It's yeah. the same situation. In this case, it was a it was a television show, but it was part yeah. of your life it's for like a long time. A, it's a little bit like a death in the family. Right. And uh, I'll, now I've kept quite busy, so it it's sort of semi caught up with me. For example, last week I was in South Korea. And I was the uh, I was the opening speaker at a major digital convention. I was the keynote speaker. Three weeks ago, I was in Portugal at another convention. These were not funny appearances. This was serious stuff. And get paid very well. Flew all the way over there. But doing this comedy routine, I finished this book. I'm the little league coaching. You know, I did all these things. So, I, but at six o'clock every night. You know, I look at the clock, and when Osama bin Laden was shot, 
and killed. I wanted to do a broadcast. So when and all these big stories have happened this year, and I would have loved to have worked it. And so sure, I have regrets. Uh, on the other hand, I don't miss doing Paris Hilton, which you have to do in today's world. Right. I don't miss the Kardashians. I don't miss those things. So it's like I, I tell a joke. It's like uh, it's mixed emotions. It's like watching your mother-in-law go over the cliff in your new car. How do you how do you feel? Oh. It's an up and down reaction. Right. <laughs> the um, you mentioned a couple of different people that that you've interviewed, and it always was a mix on your show. Meaning, right. You had great headliners, uh, very powerful people. At the same time, you had showbiz people who are not particularly known for their talent, but just because they're known. So you had always that mix. If you looked at it from just the the positive side of it, who was the most significant person you felt you interviewed over those years? It's very hard because I've done 50,000 interviews. Uh, a significant would have to be all the presidents since uh, since Nixon. Uh, that would be significant. Um, of import, uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, that was pretty significant. Uh, any kind, when I did the lead, when I did... Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, Arafat, and King Hussein, all at the same time. Uh, the pro-debate with Al Gore, which is the largest audience in the history of cable television, and a debate that changed NAFTA. NAFTA was going to fail until that debate. The introduction of, of political figures and their ups and downs. Uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, who nobody got and I, I was able to get, who uh, could in one week have uh, Lady Gaga and uh, Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and Colin Powell all in the same week. So there's been a lot of it. If I had to pin it down to one, it would be Mandela. And that's because I believe he was the major figure of the 20th century. Uh, in that he had 26 years in prison. He could have taken it out on those who imprisoned him. He could have caused a civil war of mass proportions in South Africa. Instead, he gets elected the president and uh, invites to his inauguration two of his guards who guarded him in prison. When you could be that kind of person, and that kind of gentleness and humanity and yet strength, uh, I've never seen all of that in one person. Uh, similarly, on another level, with Jackie Robinson, who I interviewed, who, who Dr. Martin Luther King told me he thought was the founder of the Civil Rights Movement. He credited Robinson hmm. for founding it. So I've had, so, God, when I think of these things, I've had so many of these moments that it, it, it's almost, um, I sometimes, Ira, I sometimes say, who did that? <laughs> You, yeah, you're taking a step back and you look yeah, back well, over that long myself. career. Sure. Who was that? But have you ever thought about starting up a Larry King podcast? You could do it from the comfort of your home office. You could do a with over by with phone, you know, by phone with uh, different people, and then you could post it on your website. And so you're yeah, still doing it. that to me. And someone said another thing. Why don't you do a Larry King like a Huffington Post, and you could do a Larry King thing all over the world. Uh, I've, I've talked about that. I, I, you know, the, the end, I have a lot of stamina, and I can do a lot of things. 
and I enjoy what I do. Like I'm doing a book tour all this week till I get to Vegas. I'm doing a lot of programs. I've really enjoyed this one, Ira. One, because you ask great questions. Thank you. And two, because I got a chance to promote what something I love, which is doing comedy. And, uh, but yeah, I guess a podcast, that could be possible. There's so many possibilities in today's world. Sure, with the technology now, you could be worldwide just from your home office and just, you know. Do you know the number one technology country is South Korea? You know they're ahead of the United States? It's unbelievable. I was just there. It's unbelievable. What they're doing is unbelievable. Yeah, I think they made a, the national government made a commitment years ago to to really develop the technology. And they got the law. Samsung is the largest electronic company in the world. It's amazing. What what accounts? You mentioned just a moment ago your stamina. What what accounts for that? Especially you you went through the chemo. How do you? Oh, I didn't have chemo. I had radiation. I'm sorry. Radiation. You're right. I I stand corrected. You had radiation, but still, that has to take a little bit out of you. How did you always have that stamina? You no, know, I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's because. Since I was a delivery boy for United Postal Service at age 22. Do you still have the brown uniform? Yeah. Okay. I have never worked. In other words, I've worked, but I've never worked. In other words, I don't go to work. When I go on stage Saturday night, that is not work. It's fun. Getting there is work. (laughs) Getting to CNN, you got to get in the car, traffic, you got to fly to South Korea. But the, when you're on, when the red light is on, or you step on the stage, man, that is freaking heaven. They're paying you for something you would totally enjoy. So I think that must add to the stamina. I think that must play into it. Because you're doing what you enjoy, and it's yeah. fun, and it just it keeps going. Here's a sort of a side question. When you would do the show each night at CNN, did they, come, did they send a car for you, or did you drive yourself? Uh, I had a uh, full-time driver. Still, I'm still using him. Good. Great guy. No, no, they drove me. Because I Although think. Although I like driving. Right, but I think in preparing for a show, it's easier if someone's driving you because. And you then another sit. thing, for since 9/11, except for rare occasions, I've always flown private, and that is the greatest side thing you could have in your life, is to fly private because you don't get jet lag. Really. Part of jet lag is time spent at airports checking in, going through all that. You don't have any of that. As you go to the airport, get on a plane, you go. Right. So the time, if it's four hours to go east to west, it's only four hours, not six. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, I find that it's a tension reliever. Yep. That's a, that's so I've had that. Are you going to come see the show? I, I'm coming to see the show. Ira, you come backstage. I will. I want to meet you because you're very good. I've, I really enjoyed doing this. Well, I appreciate it. Let's remind everybody again. It's Larry King standing up. That's one night only Saturday, June 11th at 10 p.m. in the Terry Fader Theater at the Mirage. And for more information on the show, you go to BaseEntertainment.com or Mirage.com. We have to mention your book again. It's called Truth Be Told and available at all the usual places, including Amazon.com. Larry, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And... Good luck in your uh, post-CNN career. Ira, it's been great having lunch with Ira. See you Saturday night. (laughs) You got it. Thank you.